Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Wilder podcast. I am Chloe and this is Tom. Hello. I hope everyone enjoyed our COP episode from a couple of weeks ago. It's been interesting engaging with the COP given the understanding that I took away from the interview with Nora. Some of the stories that have been coming out have been mixed at best. Yeah, I would like to hear Nora's reactions to it and whether or not, you know, it achieved what she was hoping. Again, it's hard to know these days, sadly, what to take from, because tabloids love just hitting headlines. So the headlines are unpleasant reading for people hoping for positive things to come out of the cop. But does that mean that nothing good is happening? Does that mean that the majority of the conversations happening that isn't the president of the cop are negatively impacted on it by it and or actually are some really valuable conversations being had that we don't actually hear about because we're too busy reading the headlines and tutting and rolling on our, our eyes thinking oh obviously that was going to happen and it's interesting isn't it because if you're an activist at cop you obviously have an agenda or something that you really want to take away from it and it's probably never going to go quite far enough for you to feel really inspired by the process so inevitably it's always going to be a bit of middle groundy which probably is going to leave everyone dissatisfied i think we should do a bit more digging or maybe just listen to the Outrage and Optimism podcast about the wrap-up from COP, and I'm sure they'll probably tell us what to think. Well, in fact, they've, they've done a lot of updates along the way, so I feel, well, I have some of their perspectives on it. But And, and I guess it's always good to start your own podcast with a, pl- with a plug for someone else's podcast. That's because we're, that's the thing, though, Chloe. This is the point. We're all, people should be more open, more sharey in this industry. Yeah, and if we were and less protectionist, I think we'd be a lot further forward than we actually are. So anyway... The theme of this episode is something a bit more local. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we... local being UK, yes. <laughs> like yeah. Well, you know, south, well, southwest of the UK in terms of Somerset, mm-hmm. and but perhaps we should start even more local with a little update about what's happening at the Grange Project. Yeah, br- very briefly because we've got a great interview with Chris and we hear about his project. But um, I think I've got trench foot. There is a lot of mud. I now, think we said that last time, but I mean, somebody told me that it's always a good idea to do groundworks in December. Mm. Uh, Nobody said that ever. No, they really didn't. <laughs> the way the house is situated on the land is that I think sensibly, you know, five hundred years ago, when when the the Grange was established here, not the same building, but on the site, they decided to put it about three quarters of the way down a hill in a little valley, which makes sense. Sadly, what that does mean is gravity is working against us. And whenever it rains significantly, there's a downpour and the rain essentially goes through the barns, the house, the garden. And there's been a myriad of drainage solutions, shall we say, none particularly effective. Yet again, classic conflict of interest or hypocritical statement here is that we are going to do drainage when everything about rewilding, wilding, Nature restoration is, is about allowing natural water attenuation throughout the land and blocking up drainage that have been put in by farmers, etc., etc. So, but we, on this small part of our land, we are going to put a bit of drainage in, and that seems sensible. However, it took a very long time to get plans, and now we've got a great team on site who look like genuinely they go to war. In the morning, they're very clean, and then by the time they're finished, they are covered in mud and doing their best to create these kind of natural swales and a whole bunch of really cool stuff. I think that's been the interesting part of the process for me is, first of all, because we've been really conscious of climate change and the increase in rainfall we're likely to get alongside that, this drainage has felt like a real priority for us. But I think what confused the structural engineer is when we said to him, look, please, can you find natural solutions? We don't really want to be putting concrete attenuation tanks. We don't want to be putting in loads of pipe work. And it's taken a fair few iterations, I think, for him to really understand why we said we want the ditches to be wiggly. He was like, what? Like, but not uniformed wiggly. Yeah. And you can go through the fields if you want. Um, and that, yeah. <laughs> and which, which delayed us, it turns out. And, you know, the final product will look good. I'm so looking forward to spring already, which is a scary thing to say when when our mud pits will start to look less mud pity. Yeah, well, it was the moment we were hiking up the field with the toddler and the baby through the mud, trying to get to the car, which you can't access currently to the house because of all the mud. It's just, there's just a lot of mud. Anyway, where was us? So lesson learned. Do key groundworks, not in December. But we are creating a lot of disturbance, which leads us on nicely to Chris's interview today. Positive reframe. And he does mention this, actually a similar activity that happened on his land, doesn't it? Exactly. So look out for the reference to war in his interview. Yeah. So another kind of momentous event is that we've started to work alongside volunteers on the land now, of which one is Ranger Jerry, the local guy. 
who coming every week or so now to help with work, some work on the land. So we've been continuing to pull up the fence lines, internal fence lines within the land, and that's a fair amount of work. And also we're going to move on to scalloping in the hedgerows, which we're going to we'll talk about probably in a subsequent episode. So yeah, th- things are continuing to progress. And I think what I really love about Jerry's presence is First of all, he's very cheerful and very Irish and talks a lot. So he's a great atmosphere to have around. Positivity, lots of energy. Yeah, but equally, like he wrote something about how the kind of benefits for him of being out on the land. And well, first of all, that really tangible difference of fence there, fence gone. That's really satisfying. But like, just being out in the fresh air and the benefits that had for him, kind of his mental health and physical health, like that's really important for us to hear and yeah, it makes it feel like we're not just abusing his time and that he's getting something out of the experience as well. Jerry the Ranger, he's, he's actually got his own Instagram and stuff, so we'll put that in the show notes as well. Chloe, would you like to introduce the guest we've got this week? I would love to. So it was my absolute privilege to spend some time with Krista Gorn, who is, I'm trying to think how best to describe him. He is a communicator of ideas. He's a marketeer. He's a very wise person around all things rewilding nature. He's an entrepreneur. Eco, is it ecopreneur? Entrepreneur? He's, he's many things. But what he generously gave us was, well, gave me with some of his time on his nature reserve down in Somerset. Good. And equally in this fantastic interview, which I think has a little bit of everything for everybody, whether you like your scientific theory, whether you like your personal stories, whether you like some practical tips, there is something in this interview for everybody. So it's our pleasure to welcome Chris to the Wilder podcast today. And I guess in terms of how I first came across you really was through your antics on LinkedIn. In terms antics. of fantastic posts. <laughs> <laughs> That's an okay word, isn't it? I, I mean, I don't know, Chris. How do you feel about being defined as an or described as an antics on LinkedIn? I mean, that's a nice way of putting it. I'm quite prolific. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a way of saying it. But yeah, I put a lot of content out there and maybe I should dial it back a little bit. No, no. I, like, I think that's, that is actually the opposite of what my intention was to say is like how appreciative I've found all of your content in terms of really accessible, engaging, clear, informative posts around a kind of rewilding and associated topics. So regain. To I'd regain, Chloe. Well done. No. I mean, I appreciate that, but that's uh, it's certainly over-egging it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of dross mixed in with the occasional things which I get right by accident. So. <laughs> it really it really has been really helpful on, on our journey, absolutely. And further supported this morning by you kindly allowing me to come and visit your site down in Somerset which I know we're going to talk about later on in the podcast. But perhaps before we get into it, I can see Tom saying, do the introduction. I'm, I'm wondering, Chris, if you would like to tell us just a bit about who you are and how you find yourself doing what you're doing. Yeah, I am a sort of keen amateur rewilder, amateur in the sense that I am enthusiast who has sort of learned things by doing and by talking to people and by sort of reading information. And I am not a trained ecologist in that I have not done an ecology degree. I have just been very interested, just like yourselves, in teaching myself rewilding from the ground up because I've bought this land. And when I bought the land and when I was kind of researching buying the land in the first place, I was like, what do I want to do? I really wanted a nature reserve since I was a little kid. I wanted to own a nature reserve. And I was like, you can't own a nature reserve, can you? Like, that isn't possible, is it? And then the more I kind of looked into it as a, you know, as a grown up, in quotes, the more I realized, like, well, why can't you? Like, why can't you own a nature reserve? Why can't you create a nature reserve? You just have to sort of do the same things which my sister does. She manages a few nature reserves. Uh there's no reason I couldn't do that if I bought a field and there are plenty of horse owners out there who own fields so I guess yeah so I bought a field and then I kind of looked into how I can rewild it myself and that's what I've been doing over the last two years now and yeah sort of sharing as I go. I love your childhood aspirations for nature reserve because that's exactly what our children say it's very hard to explain to them what we're doing. So so what our eldest now says to people is we're building a nature reserve, which is probably not quite accurate, but we are certainly aspiring to protect nature, yeah. restore nature. And is a really nice image though, isn't it? Yeah. And I definitely think you need, you need so much, like Alistair says from Rewilding Britain, he says rewilding is like, it's a marathon with a sprint start. You need to put in all the effort at the beginning. And like, it is that kind of building process. Like it is almost building, like there's a lot of almost construction work, like infrastructure work, which you need to do at the beginning in order to get everything up and running. And like, that is one way of doing it. That's not necessarily the way of doing it. Like, (laughs) 
you know, we were having this conversation earlier when we um, played that there are lots of different ways of doing rewilding and that is one way of doing it. But yeah, it does look like construction quite often. It, it may look like a construction site. In fact, my own field, when my uh, my relatives visited for the first time, they said it looked like something out of um, the First World War. It looked like <laughs> something out of the song. They were like, when is this going to look like a nature reserve? At the moment, it looks like, because, you know, the excavators had just been in, they dug seven ponds. So everything which wasn't a pond was just trashed. Like the ground was completely like obliterated by the the tracks which had gone over the top. They turned over all the soil, which turned out to be really great anyway, because that's what pigs do. You know, that's what wild bull will do. So they've kind of done the rewilding work for me without me actually realizing that that's what they were going to do. So yeah, it, it may look like a construction project. It may kind of feel like building. I know you were saying, Tom, that you went out with the digger and you were, oh, yeah. you were doing digger work out on the land. Like, why not? You're replicating natural processes. I unfortunately couldn't get to visit today, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. But before we jump in, Chloe mentioned when she came back from visiting you that you've got your own personal take on what is rewilding. So I'm kind of here to keen to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, from my perspective, there's like a science to rewilding and then there's a philosophy to rewilding and they're both important because if you don't get both of them together on a project, then it's very hard to succeed just pragmatically. So the science of rewilding, I kind of distilled down to the three Ds. And that comes from a paper which I read right at the beginning when I was putting um, How to Rewild, which is my website, which I started off sharing information on. Which very briefly will be in the show notes, along with Chris's LinkedIn profile, if you want to see him prolifically posting. (laughs) Uh, And I just want to mention now, thank you so much for your website, because that was one of the first websites that I came across when we were looking into what is rewilding. And what is this thing? And it was so well written, really easy to engage with and explained it so simply that even a layman like myself could get my head around it. So definitely, if you're like I was a few months back, definitely check that out. But anyway, keep going, Chris. Sorry. No, no. I really, I mean, honestly, getting feedback like that is why I did it. It is so satisfying to be able to help other people who are in the situation I was, so... But yeah, so the, the, the three Ds are taken from this paper, which is by Perino et al. It was basically, there were three Cs, which were how um, kind of rewilding started off in the US. And in the US, they had cores, corridors and carnivores. And that's how they kind of built their rewilding system. The cores were these core areas of wilderness, which still existed. And they were great because they had loads of biodiversity already in them. And then they found if they reintroduced carnivores, which had been missing from these core areas, and they'd been missing because they'd been hunted or because of habitat loss or things like that. If they reintroduced these carnivores to these core areas, then they got this massive surge in biodiversity because these carnivores would come in like the wolves in Yellowstone. And then they would have these effects on, say, the elk population. They would cause the elk to browse in certain ways that cause the riparian vegetation, the, the trees around rivers to recover. This is kind of the classic case study. And then the corridors are the thing which we all learn about when we're learning about ecology, which is like these wildlife corridors connecting up these core areas. And you have to have this corridor effect of transporting wildlife from one place to another because you have to have this mixing of genetics and you have to have this mixing of populations in order to keep these populations healthy. But also, say, if this wolf population declines in one area, then it can be repopulated from another. So even if it's getting hunted to death in one area, then wolves can keep coming in from another. So having these corridors is really important to keep that overall system healthy. But what kind of scientists realize over time is that this same method didn't really apply to Europe. Because if you did it in Europe, what you find is that what cause we don't really have a lot of core areas of like high value biodiverse environment where it hasn't been touched by humans. Because in America, although there were Native Americans who already were on the land, they were managing it at a very, very low intensity level. Whereas in Europe, white people had been on the land for a very long time and we've been doing a, a lot of damage because we've been there at high intensity. You know, we've been there at high volume of population. So there weren't really these core areas left in Europe. So we couldn't do this, the three C's model. The other thing in Europe is that we couldn't introduce practically carnivores in a lot of situations just because you're close to a high volume of uh, people and the pushback from the local population might be a problem, or you might have had a carnival which used to exist in the area, like say cave lions or something, which you just couldn't practically reintroduce because they don't exist anymore in the in this kind of area. You know, it just wouldn't have worked. So with the extinctions, with these kind of areas which didn't exist in Europe, causing the car- carnivals just didn't practically work. So they needed this new model, and what they came up with was the three Ds, which I've kind of 
there's a bit of artistic license because they didn't call them the 3Ds. <laughs> I've kind of reinterpreted it slightly. They called it stochastic disturbance, dispersal, and what was the other one? Trophic diversity. But I've called them the 3Ds because I tell you what, that's really hard to remember. Yeah, fair. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. So diversity is the, the obvious one. You want diversity in the ecosystem and you want that not just in the plants, you want that in the invertebrates, you want that in the birds, you want that in every level of the ecosystem, you want diversity. And you can build that from the bottom up, you can build that with plants. But the thing which they were kind of getting at in this paper was trophic diversity, which is basically you want diversity from larger animals, um, which are kind of reintroduced to the ecosystem, like beavers, which sort of herbivores, which would come in and then they, they would create this diversity around them by reshaping the system. Like you've heard of like ecosystem engineers, diversity from ecosystem engineers is kind of what they were getting at with this. But there's a lot of other kinds of diversity, which are really important in a re- rewilded ecosystem. Like genetic diversity is so important because if you don't get genetic diversity, you get problems with things like ash dieback. If all of the ashes in the UK were genetically identical, then then if ash dieback comes in, then there's none of them which can survive it. But as soon as you have like one or two ash which have slightly different genes, then they can potentially like have some evolved resistance. So it's really important to have this genetic diversity. And then you get diversity in terms of structural diversity, which is if you've got an ecosystem and it's like a really flat grassland, then that doesn't have a lot of structural diversity. It's just all on one level. But if you've got an ecosystem which has got some perches for birds, then that's adding in structural diversity. And as soon as you put in some extra layers to an ecosystem, say you've got a woodland, the problem with a lot of our woodlands is they don't have a lot of structural diversity. There's a lot of canopy. There's some ground flora, but there's not a lot in the middle. So the structural diversity in our woodlands, you'd have thought it'd be really high, but actually because we're missing that kind of underlayer, the, the sort of underwood, is much lower than it should be. So by planting underwood trees, by taking down a few of these top layer trees to kind of open up glades and things like that, you're introducing structural diversity. And that's really beneficial because it creates this kind of boost in butterflies, things like that, which you get in glades, right? So that, that's diversity. Then we've got disturbance. Disturbance is what you do to create diversity. So you come in and you do what you do with your digger. You you trammel around in the ground. You do what wild herbivores and carnivores would have done naturally. You go in, you break up the habitat, you trammel around in the ground, you like knock over trees. But also the thing about a lot of our ecosystems is they're so heavily managed. They're managed in a way where no natural processes can occur. So say a ash tree isn't allowed to get to the age where it can die and become deadwood. It gets chopped down before it gets to that point. So disturbance isn't just disturbance in the form of like physical action that you do to an ecosystem. It's also disturbance in the system. It's like disturbance to the, I don't know, how do you put it? Like things like dead wood, which are really valuable in an ecosystem. You just don't get them without this kind of like leaving some bits of an ecosystem to die off rather than just coming in and kind of managing everything and keeping it exactly the same. Neat and tidy. Yeah, yeah. Neat and tidy. So some disturbance is like leaving nature to do natural processes and some disturbance is coming in and replicating those natural processes where they don't happen anymore, where we're missing those processes, like beavers doing coppicing, like wild boar digging out the ground, like rivers wiggling, which they don't do anymore because we've channelized all of them. So if you allow rivers to wiggle, then you get carving away of banks and then that releases sediment into the river. That sediment builds up and then it forms banks elsewhere in the river. And then those are habitat for, you know, they could increase the amount of fish spawning because it creates shallows. And it's all sorts of things happen in a dynamic river system, which you just don't get in a normal river system. And that's what disturbance is about. Sorry, I'm going on a lot. This is quite a long YouTube's taking notes here. Perfect. (laughs) Basically having your website, but in true form, (laughs) in actual form. And this is like, yeah, this is another level experience. Yeah. Well, anyway, dispersal is the third one. So dispersal is the third D. And it's kind of a fancy word just for movement, basically. And it's saying like the thing we think about with corridors over in the US is still applicable over in the UK as well. So it's really important for animals to move across the environment. In the UK, we've got really fragmented habitat here. We've got tiny little patches of woodland here, and we've got a tiny little patch of grassland over here. 
and actually connecting them up and allowing animals to disperse between the two doesn't just mean having a corridor between the two. It also means creating stepping stones between the two because even stepping stones are better than what we have at the moment, which is, as you were describing, like green desert. It's like, you know, just huge fields which are hard for animals to cross. Hedgerows are fine. Like hedgerows are good for dispersal as well. But the thing about dispersal is it's not just animals, it's also plants. Because plants need natural corridors to disperse through, or they at least need some kind of natural stepping stones. Because if a plant seed, say my son was playing with um, the helicopter sycamore seeds, which are non-native, but they're a good example of this, right? <laughs> he was playing with it in the lounge yesterday, and he was I was asking him, like, why do you think it spins? And he was like, oh, because when it spins, it catches the wind. And like as it catches the wind, it goes further away from the parent plant. And I was like, yeah, exactly. So... It can only go so far from the parent plant. And if it lands on ground which isn't suitable for it, which is the case if it's on tarmac or if it's on green desert farmland, then it can't cross across that boundary. It can't pass from one side of the field to the other. Whereas if there's a hedgerow, then maybe it can land in the hedgerow. Maybe that can seed can take root in the hedgerow. Maybe that can slowly move across from one side of the field to the other. And then maybe there's a woodland on the other side. And let's not talk about seed. And maybe let's talk about another uh, another another tree, something like older buckthorn, which we saw in the field today. If the berries of older buckthorn get eaten by a bird and then they get pooped out in a hedgerow as the bird's going along the hedgerow, slowly but surely that older buckthorn is going to move along that hedgerow because the birds move along that hedgerow and it's going to keep moving along that hedgerow until it reaches the next woodland. And maybe it'll find a suitable habitat there, but maybe it won't. Maybe it's going to take it much further to get to that. And if we create a suitable habitat, by disturbing the ground, by creating diversity in that area, we can create a stepping stone between two habitats in the middle. And that's really good because that allows that older buckthorn to move from habitat to habitat. And that older buckthorn turns out to be the food plant of brimstone butterfly, which means that if we're planting older buckthorn in one place and then it moves to another place, then it means that the brimstone butterfly can also move from one place to another place. And do you know what? I have no idea what eats brimstone butterfly, but maybe there's a specialist bird or something which is brimstone and maybe that means that it can thrive because there's brimstone butterflies in this habitat and not in the other one so it's all about creating that diversity from the ground up but also allowing it to disperse across our landscape which is effectively as you were pointing out kind of a green desert in places but maybe we can create those stepping stones that's the three d's i love it i like i love a way of structuring thinking so I find that really helpful and you know I loved at the start Chris you describe yourself as an amateur ecologist or <laughs> that's me the definition of amateur I think is for the love of and what I can really hear is your love of this theory and these ideas and yeah. what's great is how you've then kind of translated that into practice with do you call it your field I mean it's I feel like yeah. a brand name than that but maybe it is the field <laughs> well, we've got a name which is Woodspring Wallet which is like a historical there's like um an old priory nearby which is named after and also there's like um wallet means a bramble wood nice um, it's like an old, old name for a bramble wood so I, I spent quite a long time nerding out on like historical names to try and find something which would be suitable so i just feel like there's a bit of an in joke going because i've not been there so i'd love to hear kind of a description of the land how big it is and all that kind of stuff and what it was before you started but before we go into that is there anything else you wanted to add to the end of those three d's before we move on the three d's are just the science of it so if you just went with the science of it, then yes, you could recreate, you know, you, you could create an effective rewilding project. But the problem with that is that you're not considering the impact on like the local community. You're not considering like buying from the local community and you're not considering the impacts on like, like the local economy. If you don't consider those things, then that's something which is obviously the kind of intrinsic to your project as well. And I've seen that from the things which you're doing. But if you don't consider the the kind of philosophical side of rewilding, then I don't think a project can really succeed because you need buy-in from the community. And if a project is not economically viable, if it doesn't either deliver something for the local community or deliver something of economic value, then what's to keep it going in the future? Not that it's not valuable because it's valuable for wildlife, but like land in the UK is fairly scarce in terms of like there's a limited supply of it and there's a lot of people. We need some kind of justification to have land being rewilded. So we need to find some kind of community project which can genuinely provide value for the local community, not just an add-on. It's a genuine benefit 
or something which can create jobs or can create produce, which can sit alongside the rewilding or be an intrinsic part of the rewilding. Because I think if that's missing, then I almost don't see the point. But that is, that's just, I appreciate that is my perspective on it. Oh, I love controversial views. This is great. But I think you're absolutely right. We should be looking looking at this for the long term. And a lot of things change in people's lives. Their requirements for cash flow change depending on what stage of life they're at. Their philosophy on life changes. So I think you're right. And it won't get past one generation or unlikely to if you don't have the extra X factor considered as to the additional value. So that's cool. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. I am absolutely 100% with you and I'm genuinely enjoying this. One of the things which... Like when I, when I was, yeah, I mean, I'm not that old now, but like when I was younger, I didn't really, I used to see the countryside as like an open resource and didn't, either, I used to be very gung-ho about the idea of kind of open access. And I think opening up access to the countryside is really important because it should be a communal resource. And I think gating off huge areas of the countryside so that people aren't able to access it isn't, isn't sustainable and it isn't good for like community or for mental health is something which I've tried to do on my land. I've like widened the area which is accessible around the footpath and I've kind of created signs and I've like been strewing paths through that area to try and encourage people to go across it. And I've created more permissive, I created a hundred meters more of permissive footpath, which is, you know, is not much, but it's, it's something because I've only got three and a half acres. So it's not a huge amount of land that I've got anyway. I'd like to do more, but there's only so much you can do when you have neighbours and you have to keep the neighbours happy as well. So there are considerations you have to take into account as a landowner. But I think that's something which we wilders almost need to consider from the get-go. And it sounds like you're considering with the public footpaths, which you've been kind of looking into as well, the trails. Definitely is absolutely a keystone for what we want to try and achieve. I like your point about you have to consider your neighbours. Again, that's something that maybe before you did the first bit of land you buy or before you bought your land, you don't really think about this. You're quite, I wouldn't say naive, but you're just inexperienced. And yeah. I found the most bizarre thing when we moved this land, the first thing I did, because our dogs were getting out, was build more fences around the border. And that's like yeah. the opposite of obviously the principles of what we're trying to achieve. But we've got to respect our neighbours. Our neighbours have sheep farms. My dogs are getting out completely unacceptable and therefore I had to build more fences and make sure it was secure and it's just that bizarre constant almost hypocritical position you constantly put yourself in yeah I've also put up more fences on my land one of them I was required to because when I bought my land there was something in the deeds which said that I needed to put up stock fencing the other was put in to minimize the access of dogs to the ponds because I've got ponds quite close to the public footpath and I know that as soon as you get dogs jumping into ponds then you don't get waders you don't get egrets you don't get shell duck which is uh, things which I've had on these ponds in the past few months they just don't come in because you get dog disturbance so fences on larger projects Yes, maybe in the middle of the projects, it might be worth taking them out, but around the boundaries and around public footpaths, it's a balancing act. It's difficult. It's not, there's no easy answer. That's the problem. Like, you think it's very easy from an outside perspective, thinking about buying land and thinking about rewilding when you're not in the middle of doing it, to think there is an easy way of doing it and there's only one way of doing it. But it's that thing of like, as soon as you actually start doing it and you buy land, there's not a lot of people I speak to who are researching rewilding or writing about rewilding who are actually doing rewilding. And that's mm. that's the problem, I think. A lot of people, even consultants, are telling people how to do it but not necessarily doing it themselves. And I think that's so powerful, that kind of lived experience of testing things out and struggling. You know, the, that kind of constant decision-making of what to do and yeah. not do it is a really important part of the journey and being able to kind of empathise with what that's like with the people that you're trying to work alongside. Yeah. But I think your story of your nature reserve is a really fantastic one. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you found your field, kind of what it was like when you stepped into it for the first time and maybe some of the interventions that you've been testing out as part of your project. I made an interesting financial decision, maybe not a sensible financial decision um, a few years ago, which was that I remortgaged my flat to buy the field. So I did a lot of DIY on my flat and found out that the amount I put on my flat was enough to buy a field because fields aren't as expensive as people generally think they are. I mean, they're not cheap. This one was, um, it was £35,000 just for, because I think it's useful for people to know how much it is. Yep, agreed. Um, but, you know, you could buy a car for that or you could get a really nice conservatory or something like that. But 
£35,000 is how much I spent on it. And I had to, I had to find a field really quickly because of the mortgage, the mortgage company <laughs> wanted, wanted me to find a field very, very quickly in order that they could sign off on, on the um, money going across. So I had to find a field within a month. I basically put out an advert to local horse owners because I was like, who's going to own a field that, that wants to actually sell them? So I put it out to local horse owners and I got several responses, all who said that this one local horse owner was interested in selling her field. And she was like, oh, everyone keeps contacting me and saying, <laughs> say you want to get in touch. And I was like, yes, please, please. So um, I saw the field and I didn't actually want something that big. I didn't realize how big the land was going to be. And I kind of, I'd said two and a half acres and she had three and a half. And I I looked at it. I'd, I had this picture in my mind of how big two and a half acres was. And then I walked onto a three and a half acre field and was like, my God, it's enormous. It's <laughs> forever, you know? And that was the, the thing about it as well is, I think you commented this today, Chloe, is not just like when you walk on it, it doesn't necessarily look as big as it is when you're walking around it you can walk around it for like an hour and still be walking around new areas there's just so much there it was great because it's just so much land and to get that for the price of the car i think is i I don't understand why anyone would buy a car when they can buy a (laughs) field. but this is obviously we kind of jumping ahead to what it is now but so when you walked onto it what did it look feel like kind of give give us a kind of context around the around the land what's it surrounded by when i walked onto it there was a roe deer on it and it was a green desert as you describe it it was a pasture it was surrounded by very thick hedgerows because the land itself has got like an infestation of mare's tail on it and which is like a weed which is toxic to horses and the owner was um, Ah. She didn't tell me, but I worked out because I'm not an idiot. Over, <laughs> like, it took me a while, you know, I'm not going to lie. It took me a while to work out that she'd been basically kind of leaving this patch because she couldn't do anything with it. She told me at the time that she'd been leaving the hedge- hedges grow wild because she wanted thick hedges to protect her horses. And then I realized afterwards. But yeah, it had very thick hedgerows. You saw it today, Chloe. Like some of these hawthorn and blackthorn are like trees, basically. Well, they are trees and they have a huge amount of berries on them at the moment. It's fantastic. Like there's just flocks of starlings coming down and it's brilliant because that's what's been bringing in the wildlife over the last two years. Like the, the hedgerows themselves, because there's in places they're like eight or nine, 10 meters thick. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're huge. Bramble, blackthorn, hawthorn, but very little else. There's an ash up in the northwest corner. There's a willow, which is slightly off my land in the southeast corner and literally single trees and, and i was like oh i got i got an ash but it's it's dying because it's just it's yeah. <laughs> yeah so i basically got three species of tree if you don't count the ash i got the willow um i'm not very good at iding willows because they're a nightmare it's some kind of willow and then i've got you know the hawthorn and blackthorn really but what i was saying to chloe today when she visited the field is like there's no natural regeneration apart from hawthorn and blackthorn there's just nothing popping up because there's no trees in the area there's it's just a huge area of pasture it's a green desert so the thing for me was that unless i planted trees there was going to be no diversity and i wanted that d i wanted one of those three d's i wanted Mm -hmm. to get diversity of plants going from the get-go because with a smaller project it's easier to get diversity going with plants than it is with a beaver or with a water vole, or with, it's so much logistically easier than it is reintroducing a, a species is so much cheaper too. <laughs> and I, the baby's being really noisy, so I'm just going to try and speak quickly. One of the things that really struck me was kind of the approach that you've taken to tree planting on the field, because I guess there is tree planting and there's, I don't know what to call your type of thoughtful, I don't, I don't, how would you describe the, the process that you use when it just, when deciding which trees to plant and where? I, I wanted it to look natural when you were stood in the field. So is nothing is linear. I There's one thing I can't stand is linear tree planting because there is no getting away from it. I just went to Normandy. I was walking through a woodland in Normandy. It's maybe 50 years old, this woodland, and it's like corridor, 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 corridor. It's lovely oak ash woodland, 
and beautiful woodland but it's all corridors of trees and unless you go in knock half of the trees down and then like allow them to kind of naturally regenerate over time you're still going to have that corridor effect and it affects structural diversity it affects the ability of prey to hide from predators it affects so many different things in the biodiversity and it also affects your mental health when you're there because you don't feel like you're in a natural woodland you feel like you're in a managed habitat I think that's a really interesting point. I'm going to interrupt you in your own but For me, one of the things that really struck me as I was driving home from the field today is like it was the contrast between the kind of the green deserts of the kind of equestrian spaces around it. And then you enter into the kind of the texture and the structural diversity. And the, there was just something in that that felt, I don't know, re-energizing from that space. And, and I really think that the way you've chosen to place the trees and the kind of thoughtfulness that went into that is a big part of that. I appreciate that. Thanks. There were some limitations, like when I was placing the ponds as well, I was trying to make sure that the ponds felt like they were placed in a way which was almost like naturalistic. But I've got a long straight bit on the bottom of the field and there's no way of like offsetting them more than about a meter to one side. So it's just like plonk, plonk, plonk. They are they are almost in line when you're walking down. So what I had to do with the trees is try and make those ponds feel less like they were plonk, plonk, plonk by kind of running trees down the sides of them to offset the visual line. Do you know, I, I worked for um, a gardening website before I worked for EKC List, the ecological consultancy, and I spent a lot of time thinking about garden design. And when you're thinking about how to create an ecological system, which has got lots of structural diversity and which is a pleasant place to be, it's useful to have a foot in garden design because mm. you, you're still thinking about like putting the right tree in the right place and you're still thinking about like line of sight and telling a story as you're walking. You know, there, there's this kind of expression in, in like garden design where you have to like guide the kind of visitor on a story as they're walking across the, whereas they're walking through the garden, even if it's a really small space. And you can do that in a rewilding site as well. You should be able to go on a journey as you're walking through the site. It should feel like you're walking into a glade and then going back into closed woodland and then even if you've got a really small space you can still do that if you design the pathways and you design the woodland in the right way and it can still it can still deliver value for nature and still create that structural diversity which is naturalistic I mean it isn't necessarily natural because you've planted the trees in that way but over time they will spread out in the way which they do it's just that you've put that foundation in couple of questions, actually. Firstly, how long have you been working on your nature reserve for? I will call it a nature reserve. And secondly, because we're at a stage now where we are going to look at doing some planting, I'd be really interested to know what kind of species you picked, why you picked them, and kind of what, what drew you to, to those decisions. Yeah, so I bought the field formally, uh, not this January, but the previous January, but I was planning it from the January before that. I did a lot of sketches of like what naturalistic planting would look like and then what a woodland with, you know, native trees would look like and what kind of trees I would like in a woodland. And then before I even got the site. So I was kind of planning out the woodland even before I knew what the site was look, would look like. And then when I got the site, I spent ages and ages drawing and redrawing plans. I have so many different plans for the site. Like, so <laughs> Originally, I wanted the field to be half permaculture and half rewilding. And over mm -hmm. time, I realized that I didn't need that much space to do permaculture or, you know, have an allotment or something. And what I would really enjoy was being out in nature. And so every time it shifted, the balance of like <laughs> permaculture got smaller and smaller. <laughs> and smaller. So, Chloe, you saw today, I've got like this tiny little allotment space at the end, which is like maybe 3% of the overall field space. So... I do have an orchard on there, which are non-native trees. So they're, you know, apple trees. But the thing about orchards is they are really beneficial for biodiversity, which I'm sure you know from having... I know, Chloe, you said that you read um, Benedict McDonald's book on orchards, and that's a fantastic book. And that actually inspired me to plan that orchard in the first place because I read that book and I was like, I have to have an orchard. Like, you need an orchard. You're doing rewilding, you need an orchard. But... Apart from that corner, all of the other trees are native and they're not just native. I did a lot of research to work out what trees would you naturally find in this ecosystem, in this area of the country. So not bringing in things which would have been native to other parts of the country, but specifically native to this part of the country and which was suitable for the soil as well. Because we see like huge scale tree projects where they plant 100,000 trees and like 90% of them die because they're on the wrong soil. 
or they're the wrong species, whatever. But if you get the soil type right for the tree, and if you get like the conditions right, then you get so much higher survival rate. So it doesn't just make sense in terms of like choosing trees which are good for biodiversity. It also makes sense in terms of like just your, you know, the money in your pocket, just choosing trees which are suitable for the conditions. So I showed you today the older buckthorn, which was sitting with its feet in water. When we planted that, it wasn't sitting with its feet in water, but I'd run, I'd walked the land enough to know that that patch was going to get wet that the water table there fluctuated quite a lot and it was a wet patch of the field so I was like this patch of the field needs an older buckthorn because older buckthorn are okay in like swampy condition and if you go higher up on the field you'll see you'll see hazel I'd never have put hazel lower down because they don't really like getting their feet wet so everything is in its place on the field and I've got here you go I've got a prop here this is the the map I have of um all of the fields which this is actually the copy which my poor mum had when she was walking around the field trying to put <laughs> stakes in the ground and work out where everything was going to go wow kudos to your mum <laughs> I know she's a trooper she's a hero I did say this year I was like look at the work you've done this is amazing it would look nowhere near as good as as it as it does today if she hadn't have put in all that work for the purposes of the audio listeners, we've got a, la- a wonderfully laminated, is it hand-drawn? It's actually graphic, yeah, graphic tablet. Uh, graphic yeah, okay, tablet of the land. And I- I'm sure we could take a picture of that and put it or maybe in, in, the foot- in the show notes or something. So if people want to see it, if you're willing to share. Yeah, and it's got, um, I ended up putting about roughly 30 species of tree in because I was shocked how many species of tree were local to this area honestly like when i was looking into trees i couldn't believe how many native trees we have in the uk like where the more i looked the more there were you know it's just like turning over rocks and like you just find more and more and there's just there's some amazing species that i just never knew existed like service tree obviously that is based on your experience working at the garden the garden center but also eco sule so although you define yourself as an amateur actually you actually have worked professionally in this space. So I suppose you're drawing on all your experience to allow you to use a knowledge to draw that and sketch that, right? Whereas we're not quite there yet. I spent my whole life jumping back and forth between... Try- I've been trying to get into ecology for a very long time. I tried to do a an undergrad thesis in ecology and was denied it when I was 21. And I am now 36. I ended up not going down that route. But every time I've had an opportunity i've tried to i tried to do a phd in ecology and i got i actually got accepted for the phd but the funding fell through so um yeah yeah so uh, i ended up doing a a phd in uh, plant genetics instead so uh, but dropped out of that because life happens doesn't it it does and i'm glad that earlier on in the in the recording you said that you were still young and i was thinking how old is this guy and i used to be 36 (laughs) which is which is the same age as us and i feel like we're all young together. This is good. <laughs> yeah. We can we can still lie to ourselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose I wonder for our listeners who might be thinking about, right, I want to plant some trees in my garden. I want to plant something in my garden that's native. Whereabouts yeah. might they find some information about where, you know, what is native to their area and what to look for in that respect? Wow. It's almost like you set me up there. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to notice, Chris. Just an act natural. Really subtle. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Well, I spent quite a lot of time recently creating a native plant search engine because I was asked so many times by people wanting a list of native plants. I was saying you need diversity in your garden and the best place to the best way to create it, you know, your garden or your field or your farm. You need native plant diversity and the best way to do it is by reinforcing it from the ground up by finding those species which are not there crucially. So don't plant species which are there already. You can replant them from elsewhere on your land but if there are species which aren't there and should be there which natively would have been there in the past then you can supplement you can replace those species by planting them so i i was looking for ages for like a decent native plants list and i just couldn't find one and in the end i was like well you know what i'll just build one so i built a native plant search engine where you can go on there you can filter by like your soil type you can filter by the amount of shade you have you can filter by like the fruit color you like or anything like that so you can find plants which look good in your garden whether or not you actually care about the native status and there's over 100 plants on there at the moment there's over 40 trees and it basically links out to lots of independent nurseries which sell these species. So the idea is that the more independent nurseries which we can support, 
the better, you know, the healthier our native plant industry in the UK. Because if we don't have these independent nurseries growing these native plants, then we're not going to be able to buy them. And if we can't buy them, then we can't rewild our ecosystems from the ground up. So it's really important to buy these plants from independent nurseries. I'm not going to try and sell them because that's a lot. But I think we should be planting them. I do myself. And this is the sort of solution I've come up with. This I should name it, shouldn't I? I should say what the name is. That would be helpful. It's called Buy Native, which does what it says on the tin. That's brilliant. And we'll make sure that, again, the details of that are all in the show notes for anyone that's interested. I was going to ask just a sort of final question, really, which is in sort of five years time in your field, what would you... Nature Reserve. No, sorry, Nature Reserve. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) What would you hope to be seeing? What are you looking forward to over the next kind of five years of journeying alongside that? Honestly, every time I go out there, I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is here. When other people visit me, they're quite often like, what is this going to look like? And I don't tend to look at it like that because I think if you're constantly looking to the future of it, then you don't tend to appreciate the little things which are happening right now. And I think the more you appreciate the little things which are happening right now, the more you understand your land and the more you understand the processes and the more you can feel thankful and kind of appreciative and the better it is for your mental health, honestly. So I don't tend to look to the future and go like, what's this going to look like in five years? I just look at, I go there like today and I look at the trees and go, wow, isn't it amazing that they're so tall already? Like, and isn't it amazing that we saw like there were two geese flying over? They were really low down. So it suggests that they were coming near the ponds. Never seen geese there before. Like, isn't that amazing? For me, that's one of the other things that really left me with today was the connection that you have with that land or nature reserve, sorry, Tom, and mm-hmm. the and how the passion that you showed in showing me around that is just infectious. And I think we need to have more of that. We need to have more of that passion and the wisdom and the knowledge that you're understanding you have of that land because of the time you spent there was really wonderful. So yeah, thank you again for that. I was listening to um, something Tom said the other day about the sycamore gap tree and how people really connected to that story. I didn't necessarily have a, the same take as everyone else did on the Sycamore Gap because it's Sycamore. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. but, but I totally agree that we need to be paying more attention to stories. And like, it made me think we had this barn owl on my land and it was coming back and forth all the time. And it was so cool to have this barn owl. And I was so excited because how often do you get a barn owl in your back garden? And that was effectively my back garden. It was like where I was going all the time. And like one time I went out there at, at night And I was closing one of the gates and I stood back and it just landed right in front of me, like two meters away (laughs) on the gatepost. And it didn't see me because I'd stopped moving as it flew into the field. And I just stood there and I looked at it and it looked to me and it took five seconds before it went, oh my God, it's a human. Like, like, completely freaked out and flew off. And Uh, that was the most amazing moment. And that would never have happened if if I'd not been there and if the things which I'd been doing on the land had not happened. But the barn owl isn't coming back now. And the reason it isn't coming back is because the next field over, they've put loads of horses on it and the horses have grazed the grass all the way down. And it had effectively been rewilded because they, it was going through the sale process and all the grass had grown up really tall and loads of voles were running around in this grass. Yeah. And now it's been grazed so short that there's no voles there. So the barn owl isn't coming back. Yeah, I think that's a, a great story to end on. I think that's the stuff that needs to get documented and shared. And I'm looking forward to seeing how you do that going forward. You're a very creative entrepreneurial individual, so I can't wait. Thank you very much for your time. We have really very much enjoyed this and I hope you'll, we'll be able to host you here uh, whenever you're next available. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. There is. I can't believe you basically insulted him at the start of the chat. Oh, I mean, that's the thing you want to reflect on for me to you, how I insulted him. I, I just want a little Chris in my pocket that I can carry around and who can give me all his wisdom and knowledge when I feel like I'm confused by any natural process or, or solution on the field. And his cheeriness. And absolutely. And his yeah. passion and enthusiasm, yeah. which came across so it's, clearly. Isn't that basically his website that he's, he's launching? It's so, and I love everything about his website, all the, all the resources he creates because they're so visually beautiful as well as clear in his language. And, and he was really humble in the interview. He kept saying, oh, you know, putting himself down. But yeah. I really think he should hold himself to his uh, skills and his strengths because it is so clear to me the contribution he's making to this field. Definitely. And 
despite his self-deprecation, it is clear that he is a perfectionist and that shines through. And I think, like you say, having someone like that in your pocket that can help support you would be gleaming. Uh, but I, I really feel like I have some of his ideas in my pocket. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I've got a language now to talk about what we're doing. Like, you know, when we destroy the fields, we're creating disturbance. Thinking about how do we create diversity and that starts by tracking the diversity we've currently got and then looking at how we can find native plants to plant in a really naturalistic way alongside that. And this idea of dispersal really, I really liked because it made me think about how with things like this podcast, with our website, we're trying to encourage as many people in this area to be going on a similar journey. And that's all around creating opportunities for dispersal across Southeast Wales, perhaps. Yeah, and my key action takeaway is that we need to start planting some trees, basically. And yet again, his website, where we can go on that's such, such a valuable thing. So I don't know where to start. So, you know, the fact I can go there, he is just living the experience and then creating all the resources he personally needs and he knows other people will. So I don't want to be too effusive about it, but it, fair play to him. And one of the things I was, as I was listening back to the interview, I was thinking about, he talked about this idea of when he started the project, he was thinking half permaculture and half rewilding. And then he thought, actually, but what I really love, what I'm really passionate about is nature. So that's what I should invest my energy in. And that connects me back actually to the interview we did with Lynn from Limbrook Croft, who was talking about, you've got to find the thing in the project that sings to you or that speaks to you. And that really is your kind of reason. I thought, you know, I feel like we're still working that out here. We've got lots of ideas. It's just kind of distilling it down. But I thought that was a really good example of where Chris has actually really thought about, I'm not just going to do 50-50 because kind of maybe that would be the logical thing to do. I'm going to think about what really speaks to me. And then that's where you get your passion from. And that passion, I wish I could bottle it, give me energy from it. Because, yeah, it was such a joy walking around those fields with him in that nature reserve. And it's really made me feel inspired to go out and meet other people on their rewilding projects. Because I learned so much from that experience of walking and talking with him that then you can access through conversation necessarily or even from something written down. Like it was just something like that tangible connection was really useful for me. Yep. And I really do hope that he comes and visits because, well, firstly, super nice guy. Secondly, lots of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> okay, is that, it? is that it? Are we pretty much there for today? I think so. The last thing I'll just say is that as we are starting to ratchet up, I appreciate we get into Christmas, but if people at some point do have any aspirations of supporting maybe the Grange Project in the future and maybe want to come and do a bit of volunteering, then we are starting to look into that. So please ping us an email at hello at grangeproject.co.uk or just message on any of the social media platforms we're on, you know, Instagram or Facebook. Just look, search for the Grange Project or Grange Project and let us know. Yeah, we're hoping to put together something that might be a kind of volunteer day where you can come and be part of a kind of community. We'll feed you, we'll look after you. We really hope that people might be interested in joining us and walking and talking with us and getting stuck in to some minor physical labour. I think we should do health and safety for that. No, we are not. Yeah, I mean...